Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, Embers, and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. If you would like to learn how to become a member of the channel or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, those links can be found down below. Also, if you are new here and enjoy what you are hearing or have been here and haven't done so just yet, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel out, but it also reminds you of every time I upload a video. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Backwoods Creepy Stories. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first story an ad will play. And after that, there will be no more ads within this video. This is not my story, but my uncle's. The story takes place in Naviar, Spain. English isn't my first language, so bear with me, please. When fall comes around, woods get packed with people trying to gather all sorts of edible mushrooms. It's a pretty popular thing to do in Spain since they can get pretty expensive once you purchase them at the grocery store. Anyways, he goes all by himself, like he has done multiple times. And after a couple of hours, I notice that he can no longer recognize where he is. It's getting dark and there's no service at all, so he's fucked. He starts panicking. My uncle calls 112, the European equivalent of 911, because that's the only thing you can call when there's no service. They can track his position, but aren't able to send any forest rangers in yet. After getting off the phone with 112, an older guy pops up out of nowhere, and mind you, he's super deep in. He just straight up tells my uncle that in order to get out, he needs to take the certain path. He starts walking that direction, and the old guy just disappears out of nowhere. Turns out he was right, because he was able to get out. To this day, he doesn't know if it was a hallucination or if the man was real, but he made it out safely, so at the end of the day, that's all that matters. This is a story from when I was in high school, around 2010-ish. My parents' house backs up to a small wooded area. It's not a forest by any means. There are walking trails and other neighborhoods around, but the woods are big enough that we used to see deer and the occasional fox. There was also a small creek that ran through it, and I used to spend time in the fall and winter poking around back there when it wasn't obscured by brush. I found that I assumed what was likely a deer path that ran all the way up to my old elementary school, which was about a block away via roads, but using the deer trails took about 10 to 15 minutes. I was back in this area fairly often, which is why the following story was so weird. I went down to the creek one day and followed the trail like normal, but this time, I found a partial deer skeleton at the end. The head and front legs were missing, but the rest was still there. And there was no flesh at all on the bones. They were stripped absolutely clean, and the bones were still a bright white. At the time, there weren't coyotes in the area like there are now, and I've seen a bobcat once when I was little, but they definitely weren't very common. To this day, I have no idea how that skeleton got there, or what happened to it. It was too clean to be a predator kill, 
and that also doesn't explain why the front half was missing. I got so freaked out that I never went back into those woods again. Oh yeah, bonus. This took place in a residential area, not a hunting ground. It could have been a predator kill, sure, okay. But I'm positive the damn thing wasn't killed by a human. Not with houses and an elementary school literally across the creek. True story. I know fiction is allowed here, but this is not a fictional story. About a year ago, my girlfriend and I were on a trail to Lamai Lake in northern Nevada. It's about one and a half miles each way, I think, and usually pretty well populated. It was that day as well. There was at least a handful of people on the trail here and there, plenty down at the trailhead parking lot, and it was otherwise a totally normal sunny day. Evening began to come, and we started heading back down, not wanting to be out when it got dark, as there is no cell service up there for quite a distance, and it was just an afternoon weekend hike. We started down the trail, and I got the slightest hint of a bad feeling, like we definitely needed to get back to our car before it got dark. I think that's generally just common sense and doesn't need to be prompted by a sixth sense or anything. Still, I kept an eye out as we went. Weirdly, absolutely nothing happened until we were about 300 yards from the parking lot. The trees had largely been left behind as we descended in elevation, and bushes, large and small, were there instead. There was a creek that ran through to our right. Ahead of us, by maybe 50 yards, was a lone woman and her medium-sized dog on a leash. I had my head on a swivel the whole way down because I was just trying to keep an eye out and make sure that hint of a bad feeling didn't amount to anything. I also was carrying. This woman was ahead of us by about the same distance for a good while down the trail, and I felt somewhat responsible for her safety as well. If anything strange were to happen, mountain lions are known to live higher up in those mountains, the rubies, and she was pretty much in sight the entire time, so I was just trying to keep an eye out for her as well too. After we're walking, me and my girlfriend both hear what seemed like a big boulder sliding and grating along a stone surface. It lasted a few seconds and we were both looking at the stone surface mountain slope, maybe 600 yards to our left. I'm a bad judge of distance, but I think that might be close enough. Fully expecting to see a landslide of some sort, but there was nothing, and daylight was still good enough that I think if there was something to see on that front, we would have seen it. I immediately looked to the lady ahead of us, and just a second later, she and her dog started booking it. Right as they did this, a herd of deer came sprinting out of the bushes away from the boulder sound. It might have been closer than it sounded. They ran across the creek and kept going to our right. After pausing for a second to discuss what that weird sound might have been, we hurried along as well, and I drew my gun. We passed the same little section where the lady was when she took off, and thankfully nothing happened. We didn't hear or see anything in those bushes, though I'm not surprised. A whole herd of deer was in there, and we couldn't see them until they ran out, despite being at a higher elevation at the time. We quickly made it back to the parking lot, and I put my gun back in the holster. It felt safer getting back to the pavement for some reason. We caught up with the woman and the dog. She was catching her breath and pacing a little. We asked if she heard that weird sound, and she said she heard the loud bouldery sound, and then off to her left directly close by, right where the deers came running from. She distinctly heard a big, low growl after the boulder sound. And then she heard the deer coming 
and ran to get out of the way. The deer probably would have run right into her if she hadn't moved. Watching this happen from a ways above and behind, just a minute or two previous, they came out onto the trail right where she had been a second before. We determined it may have been a mountain lion. I'm all for believing that, but I still have two questions. Number one, why did I get the feeling we needed to leave, even subtly, around 45 minutes before anything strange happened? Number two, why or how did whatever it was make a big sound of a boulder scraping along? Not tumbling, but sliding. Very different sounds. And then there was a clear growl heard by the woman, but not by us. I think that indicates there was something absolutely in those bushes, but I am very confused about the bigger sound. I doubt the same animal made a huge boulder scraping sound. It sounded like it was sliding down the mountainside. And the deer didn't run. And then the same creature made a normal growl sound from the same place, and that was what scared the deer off? I don't know what I believe about this, but it was certainly a strange experience. Oh yeah, quick edit. This was one of the few times me and my girlfriend had been on this trail together and never had any strange experiences. I myself had been there several dozen times over the course of many years and also had never experienced anything remotely weird, even towards nighttime. Alrighty, listeners, the last two stories are in three parts. I will let you know whenever I get to the next part. Cool? Here we go. Mount Kulon, Part 1 Out back of my neck of the woods is an old dirt road. It's hard to access unless you know how to take a turn down another old road that runs around the back of the coal mine I work at. Anyhow... If you follow that old road until you get to a T-intersection, you can either turn right out to the Hell Creek or left, which will take you out to Mount Kulon. Now, Mount Kulon isn't much of a town anymore. It's an outback pub, and that's it. There used to once be a town there, but everyone upped and left once the railway line got moved to the coast. That was the only reason the town existed for so long, or for as long as it did. It wasn't the start of a new town, though. Way back in the early 1900s, gold was found in them there hills by a prospector named Thomas Coulon. He staked his claim and settled there with his family. Some local aboriginals found him and his family living on their land and weren't too happy about it. So they attacked his home, throwing rocks through the windows and antagonizing him. Well, Thomas went out and shot a lot of them all, dead. Then, in a fit of grief over what he had done, sat down on his porch and blew his own brains out all over the wall behind him. Fast forward to the year 2021. I was working at the Hell Creek Mine at the time on the maintenance crew. I'd had a big seven nights of 12-hour shifts and had very little sleep. I had left my mining camp the following afternoon, still not feeling the best, but set out for the long drive back to Moranba. Anyhow, dusk came along, the nightfall. I was driving for what seemed like forever, trying to make my way back home. I was constantly looking out for the turnoff on the old brick road that ran up behind Gunyella mind, but it never came. I kept on driving and driving. Hours went by. I was on a very unfamiliar road. It started to bend and twist and turn all over, and narrowed to the point that my little Kia Rio could barely get by without scratching the sides on branches of old looming trees hanging over the road. I was definitely lost. So I pulled over to check my Google Maps. No signal, of course. I was so confused. Did I miss the turn? 
I thought maybe it's a little further up, so I pressed on and kept driving. Then, out of nowhere, I see an old and worn sign off to the left of me on the side of the old dirt road. Mount Kulon, 15K. I thought, hmm, okay. Yep, I've gone away way too far out in the sticks. Better turn around. Before I could, though, I saw off to my right the entrance to what looked like a cemetery with an old and rusty archway, and above, on the archway, was an old, rusty, wrought iron lettering, Betsy's Rest. Well, my curiosity got the better of me, so I veered in there to have myself a quick squiz. Sure as shit, there was a road that went into a giant U-shape around the old cemetery, full of tombstones. Generations of cattle farmers and jackaroos, etc., who all must have worked on the various stations in the area. It gave me the spooks pretty bad, so I got out of there quickly and made my way back onto the old dirt road. I kept heading back from whence I came, hoping and praying I'll find the bloody T intersection soon. Over an hour had passed and then my worst fear happened. The fuel light flickered on on my dashboard. Shit. I'm driving on this road in the absolute middle of nowhere. It's now midnight. No one will probably find me for days if I ran out of fuel. I was absolutely shitting myself. This is the outback of Australia. You run out of fuel, water, food in the outback, you've just signed your own death certificate. Dawn and dusted. All I had was a couple sandwiches I had taken from the camp mess hall and a bottle of water. Better than nothing, but not enough to last a couple days, stranded on the side of an old back road with no phone signal. So I keep cruising along, being extremely careful not to go too quickly or over-accelerate around all the twists and turns. As I'm driving along this lonely road, I see a shadow out of the corner of my eye. I think nothing of it, though, keeping focused on the road ahead. Then I hear it, swooping and whooshing noises above the car. What? I looked up, see what I can only describe as a giant bat creature with red eyes flying directly above my car. It startles me and makes me accelerate at a rapid rate. Yep. It's flying overhead, gliding effortlessly and keeping in pace with me. I'm watching my speedometer reaching neck-breaking speeds, and I'm bouncing all over the old and bumpy road. While this creature glides down to my driver's side window, looks inside at me, and grimaces. Then, just as it does, it flies up and disappears into the night as quickly as it had appeared. I floored that old clunker of a car of mine until my heart leapt with joy at the sign of life in that desolate hellscape. I saw the Gooniella mine, CHPP's light, cut through the vast and empty void of darkness. I knew then and there that I was within 10 to 15 kilometers of the intersection and turn off back home, and sure as shit, I found it. Anyhow, I managed to get all the way back home and very grateful that my clunker ran on an oily rag and the vapors in my tank kept me alive. I told my partner at the time all about the nightmare I had been through as she had been expecting me home the evening prior and it was now 6 a.m. in the morning. My phone was full of missed calls from her, for which I apologized profusely for. I haven't even thought to check my phone as I had had no signal for the better part of the entire journey. Well, this was part one. Part two is the next story I have about Mount Kulon, the actual experience I had when my partner and I convinced ourselves to drive all the way out there one night just to see the actual town. Part two. Months had passed. I kept having reoccurring nightmares about that vile-winged creature. It had entered my dreams. 
I awoke one night sweating in bed. My heart rate was racing. My partner asked, What's wrong? Ugh, again? I'd been waking her up late at night when I would have this horrible nightmare. The whole situation had impacted me. The desolate hellscape would reemerge in the dark night, plagued by the old outback road menacing my demise, with the off chance I would make one wrong move and come undone escaping the creature. Something had to be done, and I knew what I needed to do. You see, I'm a man that will openly admit that I can't overcome anything in life unless I face it head on. That's the only way I know. No use sticking your head in the sand and pretending things will just go away. So, I spoke with my partner, and after much discussion, we both agreed that we would go back and investigate the back road to Mount Kulon and investigate the town itself and to really drive the nail in. We were going to do it late at night. I needed answers. I needed to know what lay at the end of that old road, and whatever else I may have missed on my first misadventure. We set out at 6.30 p.m. and headed for the old back road, which now is inaccessible. You can go take a look for yourself, but the mine has shut the gate as it runs along the insides of the mine's boundary. Anyway, we were driving. My partner at the time's new Mitsubishi Mirage. It was a really beast of a car. That was a joke. But it had all the kit we needed for the long drive, and we made sure we left prepared. Esky full of food, water, and snacks. My toolkit in case of a breakdown. Torches, first aid kit, two-way radio, battery pack for phones, and a two-way radio. My trusty hunting knife, which I kept in my side door compartment, as I was going out there again completely unarmed with God knows what, lurking out there in the dark. The first leg of our adventure was rather fine. I felt a bit like Colin McRae taking the old dirt road that twisted and turned in all directions, slithering my way up to the T intersection. Once we got to the intersection, I took the left turn to head north and gradually west. The familiar road was as it was the same night I encountered that strange flying beast. Except tonight bought a slight amount of comfort as there was a full moon in the night sky illuminating the surrounds and edges of the road. As we approached the old cemetery, I told my partner to look right. She was in awe. I asked if she wanted to take a look, but she was too nervous about it, so I kept on driving along. As the night went on, we came to the point of no return. The road became nothing more than a dirt track, interspersed with sealed sections the local farmers had laid prior to and after crossing old relics of bridges. They were rusty and wrought iron, sturdy, but foreboding at the same time. We crossed two of them on one stretch, one built over the coal fields railway line heading eastward to the port. Another was over a deep ravine. The bottom was clouded by dense native plants. The road got very narrow and snaked right and left and up and down. We were in unfamiliar territory now, and I was growing apprehensive about what I would see or find. At one point, I swore there was no road at all. We were basically just driving through a wide open field, and I had to drive at 40 kilometers per hour, max to avoid any ruts or depressions in the bulldust. I was starting to think this entire trip might have been a mistake when the road then came good again to compacted dirt. A random sign appeared off to the right side of the road stating we were now deep in aboriginal land, and that was how it would remain until the ends of time itself. The drive went on and on and on. Hours had passed. Were we any closer to our destination? For reference, I switched the car's functions from Bluetooth headset to radio to scan the FM and AM for any signs of life. 
Nothing. I thought, well, I'll check again in an hour. An hour had passed, so I checked again. Scanning, scanning. A muffled and distorted voice emitted through our car. And then the sweet sound of music. It was ACDC's Highway to Hell. <laughs> uh, how befitting, I thought to myself. I said to my partner, Right, love, check the signal on your phone now. She said, two bars. She immediately checked Google Maps. I parked the car in this small spot of salvation while it loaded up. According to Google Maps, we were approximately 30 minutes away from a fork in the road. One way heading west out into the never-never. Another heading towards Mount Kulon. Good thing we checked, so we headed onwards. And sure enough, there it was. The fork in the road. No signage indicating which way to go. Just one road slightly more compacted than the other and wider. So we kept true to the road we were on and then came to a faint glimmer in the distance. A faint yellow light on the horizon. As we approached the light, it developed into a service station. Off to the left of the old dirt road, with a storefront that looked completely empty, save for a cash register on a countertop. We were now at the main intersection. Signage indicated that head right was to head towards Collinsville. Left, out west into the never-never. I came to a stop off to the right shoulder of the road, on a dirt path made by trucks that had turned here before. I checked the fuel gauge, half a tank. I looked into that old, run-down service station, scanning the area for any signs of life outside of the faint yellow glow of the iridescent tube lights above the old and rusted Bowsers that looked like they hadn't been used since the 1980s. Then I saw a figure emerging from a back room. It was a frail old woman, her hair tattered and distressed. It looked like we had woken her up. The time was now 11.30 p.m. She came to a stop inside the abandoned storefront and just stood there, staring at our car. I thought, better come forward and ask if there's any chance of fueling up. So I pulled in and rolled my window down. She came outside into the night air and approached me with a great deal of hesitation. Excuse me, I'm sorry if we woke you. We were just wondering if you had any fuel. She stood there glaring and studying me, her face withered with the harsh outback climate. No, no fuel here. You better leave now. Something felt off. There was a tension between us, and so I said, Okay, uh, thank you. I'm so sorry again. We will leave now. Thanks again anyhow, and I'm very, very sorry. So I wound the window up and got the hell out of there. We drove around the old pub in the center of what was once the town. It had multiple V-double railroad tracks parked all around it. Almost like they were protecting the pub itself with a wall of steel and rubber in the desolate darkness. A picnic table with a tin roof cover appeared on the right of this massive loop road. The only road in the area that was sealed. And even it was rather narrow. Part 3 Okay, so in part two, we had discovered the heart of Mount Kulon, an old outback pub and general store and post office. The most notable thing I'll say about this pub is that it had an amazing veranda. It fully encompassed the exterior ground level and was solid hardwood varnished. Whoever owns the pub had taken great care to preserve it, as it's all that really remains of the town bar the old petrol station, converted into an old couple's new home. Anyhow, where did we leave off? Oh, that's right. As for lighting... <laughs> what lighting? 
This place was clearly not welcoming after dark, albeit for two streetlights in the entire area that glowed faintly, only illuminating small patches of the loop road. You definitely wouldn't want to be out here with no headlights. We did the brief tour of all that was out there, then made our way back towards the main road back home. My partner said hold up, so I came to a stop again off to the side of the road, back out to Moranba. She had just discovered on Google Maps a quicker way back home. This way would take us out on that old dirt road out west in the fork in the road. However, as you continue down that road for 50 kilometers, you'll come to another fork in the road. Taking the leftward track will take us to the Goon Yellow Road, which then headed back home. Good eye, I said to her. So, on we went. The Mitsubishi ran on an oily rag, too. It was only a little four-cycler powerhouse like my Kia Rio, so I felt confident we'd make it back. On the drive back, it was another long and slow slog. At some points, I'd have to slow down to 20 kilometers per hour to make sure it was all right around the tight bends and twisting and turning through the roughened thoroughfare, which went between wide-open cattle farming properties. Then, at points, the bushland would thicken across creeks and runoff areas, and you couldn't see a meter off the side of the road. After taking the leftward turn, and what was a slight fork in the road, we made our way homebound. And then, it happened. A large creature came bounding out of the dense bushland and right out in front of our car. I came to an abrupt stop, and there in our headlights was a massive cow. It looked at us, then took off back into the bushland. I was a little stunned. That was close. Too damn close. So on we went back home. The rest of our journey was rather mundane, to say the least. The only exception was an interesting stretch of road that had been well-sealed and snaked through dense bushland. I was impressed by the craftsmanship of how well compacted it was. Then, suddenly, we were back on dirt road again. Hours on, and we made it through the Goon Yellow Road intersections with lighting signaling the turnoffs to local mines and explosives factories that made the bomb products for them, and so on and so forth. The usual akin of the coal fields. Then we made it home as the first light of morning emitted from the horizon. Pulling into our car driveway, we both looked at each other, shrugged as if to signal, what the fuck was that all about? then got out of the car and headed inside. It's a strange feeling out there. It's the desolation, I think. The lack of. It's what really drives the tension, I guess. Any moment can be fraught with demise. But it gave me the closure that I needed to put to rest the monsters in my head. Whatever I saw that night when I made that near-fatal misadventure will remain a mystery. And maybe... That is for the best. Lost in Wyoming, Part 1 Wyoming's a strange place, vast and empty, yet filled with ruthless wildlife and nature. Even the most mundane can become the most terrifying when you're alone in the woods. Ready to get lost? This is based on a true story. Only names have been changed for privacy reasons. Part 1. Light in the Sky The year was 2020. I was jobless and without a care in the world. Unemployment checks were coming in. And for the first time in my young life, I had enough money to put down on a brand new, shiny car. 
I went to the dealership and, pretty much, chose the first car I saw, which would be a 2008 RAV4. Mind you, I know it's not a brand new car, but to me, it was a car made of solid gold. I'd never owned anything with less than 200,000 miles at that point. It was freeing to buy a brand new car with no problems. I'd gotten a clean bill of health from my mechanic and figured there was no other way to break it in than to go on a road trip. My old friend had been car camping across the U.S. at that point, and we made a plan to meet up in Wyoming for the first real outdoor excursion. I packed a sleeping bag, a tent, and any other gear I could fit and drove my way out to the Medicine Bow National Forest to meet my friend. The drive there was an experience itself. No cell service, empty roads, only us and the dry, dense trees. It was nearing the middle of June as we drove our rigs out into the middle of the forest. Giant snowdrifts still lay on most of the dirt roads, making some entirely impassable. But the glacier lilies and great hyacinths were slowly peeping their heads out and the blades of fresh grass crept through the patches of ice and snow. The forest was still reawakening from its chilly slumber, and it made the whole landscape that much more ethereal. The birds were singing. The bugs began to buzz after a long winter. We drove through the trees north as far as we could, passing through large swaths of burn scar that became more and more apparent as we pressed on. The landscape was still beautiful, but there was something unnerving about those dead trees and the way they creaked in total silence. Light started to fade, and we landed in a camp spot that was partial burn scar, most likely from the fire decades ago. The Sing trees gave way to a breathtaking view of the Alpine Mesa. We lit a small fire and set up camp as we caught up with each other's lives. It was pitch black as we sat over the campfire, roasting brats and laughing over good old memories. When we saw it. It started as a sliver of light on the horizon, thin and bright. It looked like a car that had its brights on, far, far away. But the thing was, we were on one of the last accessible roads. There were no other roads that direction, only dead, fallen trees for miles. But the light got brighter. What is that? I finally exclaimed. My friend looked over his shoulder and was just as bewildered as I was. It was so bright, and it appeared to be coming closer and brighter. Suddenly, the thought of a forest fire flashed through my mind. I'm sure the same idea went through my friend's head as we both locked eyes shot up from our seats. The light was captivating, hypnotizing almost, but time was short. We scurried around the camp in a frenzy trying to track down our things. The light became larger and brighter. I had never seen anything so bright in pure darkness before. As it grew in size, so did my fear. Was it another camper driving aimlessly through the forest? A fire? A bomb? The end of the world? In a strange moment, we both stopped and looked towards the light. The silver had turned into a blinding cascade of light, and it grew. The trees around us lit up, and their strange, scraggly shadows were cast down upon the ground. We looked onward, bathed in the light of this great bright thing. What in the hell was it? With the silence, up it crept. That was when we realized it was the moon. A full moon. The fullest I've ever seen, I'd say. We laughed hysterically as the moon rose, teasing ourselves for getting so paranoid. Spirits returned to normal as we settled in for a chilly night of sleep. 
To this day, I've never seen a full moon so big and so bright as the one that evening, and I think it's pretty silly for one person to mistake the moon for a forest fire. But for two people to do it, that's a little bizarre. Maybe it was a warning, a foreshadowing of strange things to come. At least, maybe that's how I should have seen it at that time, if I'd known what lay ahead of me. Part 2 It was a chilly June morning. I awakened with a slight mist on my breath and wiggled out of my sleeping bag. We couldn't have gotten off to a better start. It was a beautiful early summer day. The sun was shining with only a few small puffy clouds speckled across the big blue sky. My friend, Sam as we will now refer to him, and I picked up our remaining gear and got back on the rough back roads of the Medicine Bow National Forest. Today we were heading even more north to a large but secluded reservoir in the middle of the forest. We had lost most of our Google Map data as we'd gotten farther in, and both of our cars were without GPS and touchscreen. But, as I learned from a former analog camping escapades, you gotta just look for the big brown signs, and that'll usually lead you the right way. I didn't think twice about not having a physical map with us. Hindsight's 2020. It was strange having the roads all to ourselves. You would think that the place would be infested with four-wheelers and happy campers, but the mix of the 2020 pandemic and an extra wet winter left scant others on the trail. The further we went, the less people we saw, until eventually we hadn't come across another person in several hours. The roads had gotten progressively worse as we drove on. Large, muddy ruts turned into slushy potholes that would explode into a rainbow of ice shards with each tire rotation. I followed closely behind Sam's forewarner, rolling along in my stock summer tires as best I could in the ever-deepening snow. But there came a point in the road where even Sam second-guessed getting across. There were a few logs lodged into the drift to help with tractions. Even so, it was still a good three feet of slushy wet snow. Sam approached cautiously, but with a few spins of the tires, he made it across the dirt. Now, it was my turn. Call it stupidity, inexperience, what you will. I was determined to make it over that damn pile of snow. I didn't want to come off as that fearful little girl that couldn't do tough outdoor shit. And so once Sam was across, I put the pedal to the metal and gunned my little rap 4 across the snow. I heard my car revving and groaning as I pushed on, only to come to a sputtering stop in the middle of a snowdrift. Tired as I might, I couldn't roll forward. I couldn't go back. My car had sunken into the soft snow, and I was stuck in the equivalent of cold quickstand. Now, we weren't totally unprepared. Sam had a couple of toe straps. The challenge was finding a way to attach them onto my car and drag it out. My hands were frozen and scratched from the ice as we dug with any shovel-type instruments we could find. It took some time, but inch by inch, we wriggled my car free. Not without damage, though. We had ripped off my undercarriage cover in the process, and who knew what else couldn't be seen with the naked eye. I was pissed, mostly at myself for being such an idiot. Not only had I damaged my brand new car, but the road was now totally inaccessible. After our laborious snow digging operation, the piles of slush and mud made it impossible for either of us to turn back the way we came. Thankfully, we were pressing on north using a different route, but with each mile we drove, I felt less and less confident. 
if there was this big old snow pile on one of the main back roads, who's to say how the other roads would look further on? We arrived at the reservoir by mid-afternoon, hungry and irritable. Our thoughts soon melted away with the summer sun and waterside views. The reservoir wouldn't officially open for the season due to COVID, so we were met with empty beaches and the soft sounds of the waves on the shore. It was peaceful and very much needed after spending the last few hours digging my car out of the gold snow. Little did we know there were clouds on the horizon. Dark ones. The white puffballs of the morning had turned an ominous black, and a chill wind had swiftly picked up. Something was coming. Part 3. The Storm We sat on the beach for what seemed like ages, simply absorbing the last 24 hours. It's crazy how time can stretch when you're out in the wild. The trek out the night before, the car getting stuck, Things that would feel so mundane or mildly inconvenient in day-to-day -day life felt like a momentous event out here in the middle of nowhere. The calm waves became louder, more rushed as they lapped against the eroded rocks of the shore on which we sat. The summer sun slid behind the clouds and the balmy 70-degree day dropped a quick 30 degrees within the span of us walking from the beach back to the cars. Like a whisper, a single snowflake fell on my windshield as I shut my driver door, and I knew we were in for one hell of a storm. As a Colorado child, I was raised to laugh in the face of snow, especially in June but our measly storms were no match to those of Wyoming. The few flakes fattened and fell in large clumps as we traversed our way into the trees. Our route out was to take less than an hour and got us just outside the small town of Centennial. Maybe if we went quickly, we could outrun the storm. Maybe, if we were lucky, we would find a little hotel for the night and wait out the cold weather. Optimism is futile in the wild. Practicalism is a much better option. We drove on and the snow got worse. I squinted and white-knuckled my wheel while I navigated the rutted road that was coated in fresh powder. Sam was only a few feet ahead of me, but I was having trouble keeping track of him. When heavy snow falls that fast, it's like trying to stare through the static on a television. It had been just over an hour when Sam came to a sudden stop. It took me a second to see why, but smack dead in front of us was a snowdrift on the road that was at least ten feet tall. Our way out was now impossible. It snowed harder. Sam ran out from his car to my window. We had to make a plan, and fast. We had no GPS, no maps, no cell phone service, and now a zero way out in the middle of a summer blizzard, by which we were completely unprepared for. Our best bet was to head back towards the reservoir, and even now, that was an hour away, and all of the already foreign roads were now covered in a blanket of snow. We did our best to retrace our tracks, but were losing daylight fast. We'd go down a road, certain it was the way back, only to be met with a dead end of snowdrift. Over and over we'd try a road dead end and turn back around, bringing my gas tank down to less than half full. Finally, with a stroke of luck, we found a familiar-looking clearing with a road that we were pretty sure would take us back to the reservoir. It was almost dark and the snow was now impossible to drive in with my summer tires. So, knowing we were possibly on the right track, we finally pulled off to make camp. As I put my car in park, I looked out the window and onto a group of nearby moose stampeding through the clearing. 
The snow swirled around their black silhouettes as they pounded towards the forest. The silence after was deafening. We were all alone out here. As you would imagine, we weren't expecting a winter storm in the middle of June, and I wasn't prepared for it either. Back then, I was still relying on a Walmart camping setup, and that was maybe good for sleeping in the 40 to 50 degrees range. The heaviest jackets I had were a sweatshirt and a raincoat, no gloves. My cheap butane stove barely lit in the cold temperatures, and food supplies were dwindling fast. I couldn't keep my car running for heat because we had no extra gasoline, and no idea how long it would take to find a new route out to asphalt. The cold set in, then reality. I felt broken as I started to shiver. The epic camping trip was turning out to be a lot more epic than expected, and I was starting to get scared. Sam was faring better than I, but still had a tinge of anxiety in his manner. Our way out was blocked. The way we came in was blocked, even more so with the fresh snow. There were plenty of roads around us, but we were effectively stuck in a labyrinth without a map. There was no way to tell which of the roads would be blocked by mounds of snow and which would lead us out if we could get out. We were lost in Wyoming. It was now pitch black outside. The wind picked up and screamed as I huddled in the back of my car, trying to build a makeshift tent out of the extra blankets to stay warm. The snow was stacking up. I did not have a good feeling about this. I think the area ended up getting about a foot total from start to finish. For the Google Map enthusiasts, I can't guarantee this is the exact route and spot as it's been a few years. As for the way back to the reservoir, I really can't say. I was so focused on not getting stuck that I left a lot of navigating to Sam. We definitely did not go back the way we came and got lost on a few dead-end roads, forcing us to turn around a few times. All forest roads started looking the same after a while. It's a problem. I know we eventually landed here because I remember the clearing so distinctly after a lifetime of trees. Part 4 and Part 5 to be continued. And that, dear listeners, brings it close to these true backwood creepy stories. I know I had mentioned before that I thought that that subreddit was going to get shut down. Now they have a new mod so we can continue with these awesome backwood creepy stories, which so happen to be my favorite. I would like to give a very special thank you to the reformed members of the channel. Inner Scare Wifey, Howler's Mom, Tina Mead, Seven, Luz Crispin, Tammy Slayton, C.A.G., Denise S., Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Norma D.W., Chrissy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's Niece. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.